This is Lecture 5A on Deuteronomy by Robert Vinoy. Lecture 5A. In Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 14 and following, it says this, and I quote, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. End quote. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses, as it says in verse 16. And then in verse 17, we read, He must not multiply wives. Verse 18, He will make a copy of the law for himself, that is, learn the law and live by it. Now, H. Tennant says, and I quote him, Chapter 17 could not have been written when there was a king on the throne but only when there was the probability that one would be elected and it was necessary to insist that certain things must be adhered to. End quote. Someone wouldn't write something like chapter 17 if the king were already there. So, Tenen says, you have to get a time when there is no king, but there is a probability that one is going to be elected or selected. Interestingly enough, one of the qualifications of the king is that he must be an Israelite. In verse 15 we read, quote, Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. End quote. Well, when would such a situation be in existence when there would even be the thought of setting a king over the people of Israel who might not have been a native-born Israelite. You have to think of a time or a situation that accounts for that. Of course, I think the question can immediately be raised. Why not go to the pre-monarchic times shortly after the exodus out of Egypt when they had a mixed multitude? But in any case, here's a man in 1920, that is Tennant, who is trying to push Deuteronomy, instead of back to the time of Moses, in the other direction, much later than the 621 date that we've spoken of before, and he writes a book and develops a theory to support that. Here's another name you ought to be familiar with, Holsher, who in 1922 had similar ideas to Tennant. He set out to prove the book of Deuteronomy had no relation to the law book of Josiah, but was at least a hundred years after the time of Josiah. So again, you're down to the 500s B.C. Holscher says, and I quote him, to demand a single sanctuary in pre-exilic times would have been a piece of impractical idealism. End quote. Now, he is assuming that Deuteronomy demands a central sanctuary and that to do that would have been impractical idealism in pre-exilic times. He says, and I quote him, How could the entire population of the country journey to Jerusalem for a whole week at festival time, leaving farm animals to fend for themselves? End quote. It was very impractical to demand centralization of worship and then to place Deuteronomy chapter 12 in a pre-exilic time. That is just impractical. So he goes on to say, quote, Deuteronomy was not a program for reform, but the wishful thinking of unrealistic post-exilic dreamers, end quote. It is not something that ever was or ever could be. 
So he felt that it was written sometime probably around 500 B.C. by priests in Jerusalem. This is quite a different background than Wellhausen because, interestingly enough, Wellhausen felt that there was a prophetic background to the book of Deuteronomy, not priestly, and that the motifs and ideas that you find in Deuteronomy were a result of prophetic influence, not priestly influence. So Holscher places this book, Deuteronomy, in post-exilic times, claiming it was impractical for earlier times and was developed by priestly influence, not prophetic. Okay, second point, which will entitle Challenges to the Classic Wellhausen Position. These are advocates of a date earlier than 621 B.C., but later than the beginning of the monarchy. In other words, earlier than 621 B.C., but not going all the way back to Moses. There are several names here that I want you to be aware of. H. Ewald, he died in 1876. Ewald argued Deuteronomy was written in the reign of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh was followed by Ammon, and Ammon by good king Josiah. So you move back, not significantly, but three kings earlier in the time of the reign of Manasseh. Another name is G. Westfall, and in 1910 he wrote Law and the Prophets, and he argued that Deuteronomy inspired the Reformation like that outlined by Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah was the king before Manasseh, so you move back another king. What was behind Hezekiah's Reformation? Well, Deuteronomy must have been present at the time of Hezekiah, according to Westfall. Then we have Ostreicher in 1923 in his Das Deuteronomische Grundsatz, and he argued for a date earlier than Hezekiah, perhaps as early as the 10th century or sometime in the 900s. You see, now we're getting back close to the beginning of the divided kingdom. Ostreicher rejected the idea that either the Reformation of Josiah or the Book of Deuteronomy demanded centralization of worship. Now that was the basic thesis of Wellhausen, who said both Josiah's Reformation and the Book of Deuteronomy demanded centralization of worship in Jerusalem. Ostreicher rejects that idea. Two terms that Ostreicher used have become rather well-known in discussions concerning Deuteronomy. In his view, the reform of Josiah was confirmed with Kult Reinheit, that's a German word. Kult is just like our English word meaning cult. Reinheit means purity. So it is concerned with cultic purity, or purity of worship. Deuteronomy was concerned with, as I mentioned before, cult Reinheit, not, and here's another term, cult Einheit. Now, Einheit is unity, but not cultic unity in terms of centralization of worship. In other words, his view was that Josiah's reform was more concerned with purity of worship than unity of worship at the central sanctuary. He points out that Josiah had begun his reformation on his own initiative several years before the Book of the Law was found. So even if you conclude that the law book was Deuteronomy, which may well have been the case, the finding of that law book did not initiate the reform, but gave new impetus to a reform that had already begun. So he sort of challenges Wilhausen's view by identifying the Book of the Law with Deuteronomy, 
and he challenged Wellhausen's view that the book called for the centralization of worship and taught that Deuteronomy itself came from a much earlier time and that Deuteronomy did not in any conclusive sense demand centralization of worship. Again, he emphasized purity, not unity, in the centralization of worship. Now, I think Ostreicher is trying to take the Reformation of Josiah seriously, and he works out the implications of that, and he even takes Deuteronomy seriously to a certain extent. But still, he probably feels that the difference between, say, the Covenant Code and the Deuteronomic Code and the Priestly Code needs an explanation other than it was Mosaic. Well, if you're following along on the outline, this is capital D, and I want to bring up the name Adam C. Welch. He has two books, one he wrote in 1924 and the other in 1932. The book in 1924 was entitled The Code of Deuteronomy, A New Theory of Its Origin, and the 1932 book was entitled Deuteronomy, The Framework to the Code. He came pretty much independently to the same conclusion as Ostreicher concerning centralization of worship. In other words, he did not feel that basic thesis of Deuteronomy was the centralization of worship. However, his reasoning was totally different, even though coming to the same conclusion. He felt that Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, which is one of the crucial passages on the whole centralization issue, was a later insertion into Deuteronomy. So we'll have to look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, eventually to think about this matter. Does it demand centralization of worship? Or doesn't it demand centralization of worship? On this hinges the Wellhausen theory. Now, Welch says that the whole book of Deuteronomy doesn't emphasize that, but perhaps chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, do. But that was because it was a later insertion, and he thought the emphasis of the book was on the character of the places of worship, not the number, not the one centralization, in other words. The focus was on cultic purity, not cultic unity, which is like Ostreicher's view. He concluded that the book contains material originating in northern Israel from the time of Samuel on. So we're getting back earlier. You see, the time of Samuel is pre-monarchial. It contains material that dates back that far, but the present form of Deuteronomy that we have is really no earlier than the 8th century B.C. In other words... He pushes Deuteronomy back another century before Josiah, but no further back than that. That was a period of development when the form developed into what we have now. Lastly, we have our friend Gerhard von Rad, which he's seen before, who has done an enormous work with Deuteronomy, as well, of course, on many other areas of Old Testament studies. Von Rad is one of the most influential contemporary Old Testament scholars. He died just a few years ago, so he's no longer living, but much of his work is still being read, and currently he's enormously influential. I'll mention three of his works that dealt with Deuteronomy directly. First, there is an article called The Problem of the Hexateuch that was written in 1938. That is available in English translation in the book The Problem of the Hexateuch and Other Essays. 
His second book is Studies in Deuteronomy, and now is out in paperback, and that was published in English in 1963. Originally, it came out in German in 1948. And then there is Deuteronomy, a commentary, which was published in German in 1954. The English translation came out in 1966. What he tried to do, which is really sort of a distinctive move out of the tradition of literary critical methodology, was to approach the book from the form-critical method. And what attracted his attention, as far as Deuteronomy was concerned, was its structure, the total structure of the book as a whole. Going back to his article, he says the following in The Problem of the Hexateuch. And this is the 1938 article, and we're looking at pages 26 and 27. And he says this, which is very interesting, quote, We may leave aside many of the difficulties currently raised by Deuteronomy and confine ourselves to the matter that has barely been touched on by scholars, despite all the controversy about the nature of the book. What are we to say about the form of Deuteronomy with its remarkable succession of teachings, laws, and so on? Even if we thought Deuteronomy in its present form was straight from the theologian's desk, it would not prevent us from asking what genre it belongs to. Genre is literary form. It's the total structure of the book. This simply drives the question further back and causes us to look into the history and development of the form of the material used by the Deuteronomic theologian. One cannot accept the assumption that these men created ad hoc remarkable literary form. End quote. You see, for von Rad, the focus is the total structure of the book. He looks at it from the viewpoint of what kind of genre is involved and what is the origin of that and what implications does that have for faith. Where does this form come from? He says, quote, one might be forgiven for imagining the Deuteronomic writer coming around with a diversity of forms into which to pour new content and utilizing the most useful combination of various elements that give expression to those special theological emphases. Obviously, from the point of view of form criticism, no one would accept such an argument for Deuteronomy. It is precluded by the recognition of the fact and this is something totally new in Deuteronomic studies from a critical position at this point, that Deuteronomy is, in form, an organic whole. End quote from von Rad. In other words, von Rad starts speaking of the unity of the book. It's an organic whole. We may distinguish any number of different strata and accretions by literary criteria. In other words, he uses literary criticism to determine levels of material, earlier material, later material, and all that. But in the matter of form, the various constituents form an indivisible unity. The question is thus inescapably raised concerning the origin and purpose of the form of Deuteronomy as we now have it. And that's the end of von Rad's quote. And then he concludes by saying, the forms give us unity. Now, this argument was written in 1938. Von says that Deuteronomy falls into four sections. Let me give you his four sections. They are, one, historical presentation of the events at Sinai, and paranetic, that is, horatory, or preaching material, connected with that event. Paranetic material connected with the event is the material connected 
that have the characteristic of exhortation or preaching or teaching. Now that's Deuteronomy chapters 1 to 11. It is a historical summary of the events at Sinai and paranetic material connected with those events. Second section, according to Von Rod, the reading of the law, and that's Deuteronomy chapters 12 to 26. This is where you get all the legal material. The third section is the sealing of the covenant, and that's Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 16 to 19. And then you have the final, the fourth section, the blessings and the curses, that's chapters 27 and following. So you have four separate sections as far as the book is concerned. Ponrod does acknowledge the book forms in organic whole, however, in spite of these sections. What Fonron recognizes is its structure and its form. What situation in life, or Zitzimleben, may have produced that form? Where does it come from? What is the explanation for this remarkable form found in the book of Deuteronomy? He says it's not some ad hoc creation of some Deuteronomic sect. There's got to be something more to it than that. So he wants to press back and find some explanation for this form. In his commentary, which is much later than the article, The Problem of the Hexateuch, which, as we said, in 1938, in his book, Studies of Deuteronomy, which is in the early 1950s, and in his commentary on Deuteronomy in 1964, on page 4, he says the following, and I'm quoting him, Deuteronomy shows a remarkable arrangement, a predominantly horatory message to the people, that is, the paramnetic function, preaching and explication to the people. This law section ends in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 16 to 19, with the formulation of the covenant. Then it is followed by the proclamation of blessings and curses. That is the fourfold structure that I mentioned above. This arrangement is not due to literary considerations. To the contrary, we must suppose that Deuteronomy is here following a traditional cultic pattern, probably back to a liturgy of a cultic festival. End quote. Now, that's his basic idea. The explanation of the form is to be found in a cultic liturgy that was extant in Israel. The form of that cultic liturgy has been adopted here by the writers of the book of Deuteronomy. So, he goes on to say at the bottom of page 12, quote, We will content ourselves with the statement that Deuteronomy presents itself to us as a mosaic of innumerable, extremely varied pieces of traditional material. There are all these different kinds of material from all different types of time. But at the time, this is not to deny that the book must have the understated unity in its form. End quote. Now, Fonrad views the book as a final product of a long process of development. He regards its structure as evidence that the origin of this material is to be found in a covenant renewal festival held periodically at Shechem in pre-monarchic times. Now, Shechem is a town in the north of Israel at which a covenant renewal ceremony was held. It's found in Joshua 24 as Israel came into the land under the leadership of Joshua. So they went to Shechem, and the people pledged their allegiance to the Lord there. Von Rad calls these covenant elements as having their roots at the site or sanctuary of Shechem. 
These elements were preserved there, and they were passed down from all the days of Israel's occupation of the land, and they were enlarged upon, and ultimately you get the material from that Shechem sanctuary preserved for us in the book of Deuteronomy. So, what is the intermediate link from what we have now in the original ceremony at Shechem, who preserved and elaborated on this old cultic material? Bunrod says, and I quote, In its present form, Deuteronomy is to be attributed to the Levites, the priests, who taught the law during the monarchical period. End quote. Now, his Levite theory then really connects with this cultic material and liturgy at Shechem, and was transmitted and taught to people in Israel later on. The Levites were responsible for the book of Deuteronomy as we have it. In his commentary, his conclusion in regard to dating is on page 26. After discussing the idea of cultic origin and liturgy at Shechem, and transmission and preaching of the Levites through a long, complex process, he says this, If these considerations are both granted, then we shall suppose one of the sanctuaries in northern Israel, Shechem, or possibly Bethel, to be Deuteronomy's place of origin in the centuries before 621 B.C. There are no sufficient reasons for going further back. Quote. Now, in other words, by saying the centuries before 621, he's moved back slightly from the Graf Wellhausen position as far as the form and time of the book are concerned. However, he would trace the antecedent of that final form over a long time of development way back into the days of occupation of Israel, but not back to Moses, but back to the early days of the entering into the land of Canaan under Joshua. He connects the book of Deuteronomy's initial form with the Shechem sanctuary. I've gone into a little more detail with von Rad because we want to come back to von Rad later in connection with some other matters. But for the present, I think it is evident that he sees the book of Deuteronomy as a unity. He saw the structure of the whole in 1938 and in 1964 again, but the conclusion he draws from that form in connection to the date is that he places it with the Levites who are responsible for putting the form of the book what we have at present. He does not accept the origin of the form of the treaty as important for the early date of the book of Deuteronomy. All right, third, obviously, Fonrad has a date earlier than 621, yet it's post-monarchial. Well, there's a third category, and that's pre-monarchial, but not mosaic for the origin of Deuteronomy. And there are two men who espouse this position. First is Edward Robertson's 1950 book, The Old Testament Problem. He says that Hebrews, that is the Hebrew people, entered Palestine developing a nucleus of laws that comprised the Ten Commandments and perhaps the Book of the Covenant. Between the settlement and the rise of the monarchy, Israel became decentralized and broke up into a number of different areas and religious associations, each with their own sanctuary. There were a number of sanctuaries scattered around the place, and those sanctuaries there developed divergent, although related, traditions. In other words, you get a lot of isolated, independent traditions developing at the different sanctuaries subsequent to the conquest and settlement of the land. When the people were reunited under a king, it was necessary to bring about religious unity. 
You have people then from the conquest, around 1400 or 1200 B.C., depending on how you date the Exodus, and you have three or four centuries of development. That's a long period of time. With the rise of kingship, there was a need for unification. So for that purpose, a summary of legislation comprising the codification of the law codes of the various sanctuaries was prepared under Samuel's guidance, and that code was the book of Deuteronomy. So in Samuel's day, all the diverse materials were fit together in some form, and that would be the standard law book for the centralization under the kingship. Robertson would accept that Deuteronomy chapter 12 calls for the centralization of worship, so unity under a king made centralization possible and desirable. So he posits the origin of Deuteronomy to this kind of a process, and he puts it in the time of Samuel. There's another man, R. Brinker, and he wrote the book, The Influence of Sanctuaries in Early Israel, and that was in 1946. He has a position very similar to Robertson. The difference between Brinker and Robertson is that the former argues that centralization is not the focus, but rather than centralization, purification of worship is what was really involved. But he still dates it to somewhere prior to the monarchy, probably again in the time of Samuel. The fourth point would be the Mosaic date. I will just give you the names of a few men that maintain an early date. All through history, there has never been a time without some representatives of a Mosaic date. So that brings us right up to the point of advocates for a Mosaic date of Deuteronomy, which is number four then under the heading of Mosaic date. Now, all I want to do here, rather than go into any detail or lines of argumentation at this point, is to mention certain people who since the time of Wellhausen have taken into consideration all his arguments and nevertheless have maintained and held on to the Mosaic origin for the book of Deuteronomy as the Bible presents the book to be. Here are several men. James Orr, in 1906, wrote The Problem of the Old Testament. So that goes back to the early 1900s. There is H. M. Wiener, 1920, and he wrote The Main Problem of Deuteronomy, and that's the title of his study. There is Oswald T. Alice, no doubt he is more familiar to you, and he wrote The Five Books of Moses in 1943. And then there is Edward J. Young in his Introduction to the Old Testament in 1949, and the second edition is 1960. In Holland, there is a man named J. Ritterbos, who wrote a two-volume commentary on Deuteronomy in 1950 and 1951, that's in Dutch. Also, we have G. C. Alders in his introduction, also in Dutch, and that is in 1953, and his introduction is to the book of Deuteronomy. More recently, we have R. K. Harrison's Introduction to the Old Testament. It is a very large book, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It was published in 1969. I might emphasize his introduction is a very good survey of the book of Deuteronomy. He comes out in favor of Mosaic authorship. An introduction treats critical problems, such as date and authorship and that kind of thing. So what I'm getting at here is that in spite of all this debate, trying to push Deuteronomy later or earlier, but not Mosaic, that has gone on since the time of Wellhausen, 
there has been a tradition with very responsible representatives all the way through who have argued for the Mosaic origin of Deuteronomy and who defend that view. Now, of course, more recently, some new lines of approach have developed which, in my opinion, strongly support the traditional position that has been maintained all along. So that brings us to Roman numeral two of our outline. Roman numeral one was authorship and date, a survey of critical sources. And Roman numeral two is the literary structure and scope of the book and their historical implications. Capital A under that is the structural integrity of the book has often been questioned. Now, we've already noticed that in our discussion of the critical views, going back to Wellhausen, he found the original core as being a unity, but its date, of course, is late. The core, chapters 12 to 26, is a unity, but what comes after 26 and what precedes chapter 12, Wellhausen thought were secondary additions, so the structural integrity of the book from Wellhausen on has been severely questioned. One of the problems in relation to structural integrity we'll come back to later, but let me mention at this point the following. It has often been said there are two introductions to the book of Deuteronomy. One is chapters 1 to 4, and the other is chapters 5 to 11, as a second introduction. G. Ernest Wright has the commentary on Deuteronomy in the Interpreter's Bible commentary series. You're probably familiar with that series. It is a good contemporary representative of critical Bible commentaries, critical in the sense of negative criticism. Wright says of those two introductions, and I quote, neither needs the other. They seem independent of each other, end quote. So when we look at the structure of the book of Deuteronomy, he thinks there are two introductions that are loosely connected to each other. How do we explain that? What Wright is doing here is adopting the view of Martin Noth, who came up with a very complex idea, which he called a Deuteronomic history book, a product of some Deuteronomic historian of exile or post-exilic times. Who wrote this Deuteronomic history work that he said ran from Deuteronomy through Second Kings? In other words, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings are comprised by the Deuteronomistic history book, according to Noth. So you do have a unity there. It is a Deuteronomic history book. Now notice, if you adopt Noth's view on this, he takes Deuteronomy out of the Pentateuch. So you're left with four books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, for unity. And then the next unit within the Old Testament is the Deuteronomistic history in which Deuteronomy is not considered part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but heads its own section into which the Old Testament can be divided. In adopting that as a framework, Wright, as well as Noth, then says that chapters 1 to 4 of Deuteronomy introduce this history work as a whole, while chapters 5 to 11 introduce the book of Deuteronomy within that larger history, quote, book, end quote. There are two introductions. The first one introduces this whole block of material that Deuteronomy heads, that is Deuteronomy to Second Kings, and chapters 5 to 11 introduce Deuteronomy itself, which is the first book of this second block of material. Now, that's just another illustration of how the structural integrity of Deuteronomy has been attacked. 
How do you explain the organization of the book? So structure of the integrity of the book has often been questioned. Now, capital B under this literary structure of the book is, again, Gerhard von Rad, which we already know from the preceding section. He called attention to the structural pattern of Deuteronomy all the way back in the year 1938. In that year, von Rad called attention to the significance of Deuteronomy's structural pattern. Von Rad said the book is basically a unit. He said there was a structure there which indicated that the book was to be taken as a unity. Now we're going to come back to that later on, and we've already discussed some of that material. It is interesting that someone like von Rad back in 1938 sees a pattern in the book that keeps the structural integrity. Now the reason why I said that will become clear later on. Finally, and we'll pick this up later, we want capital C, Meredith Klein making use of what you can rightly call a form-critical approach to the book of Deuteronomy that honors the integrity of the book. Klein doesn't hypothetically construct some theory of composition that is in conflict with the statements of the book. He accepts the integrity of the book, but approaches it with this form-critical analysis. I think that, in turn, has implications, as Klein points out, for the interpretation and for the date of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, time's up, and we'll have to pick that up next time. That was lecture number 5A by Robert Vinoy on the book of Deuteronomy.